I'm Liz Logan, and you're listening to Collecting Culture, a podcast about passionate collectors and the objects they love. Susie Frank's a collector of novelty salt and pepper shakers. She's an interior designer and a fine art photographer in Pasadena, California. She spent roughly two decades collecting salt and pepper shakers from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Why? Because the iconography of these shakers is adorable, bizarre, hilarious. And she says she just has the aberrant collecting gene, so she became obsessed. She attended about a dozen conventions, pored over books on novelty shakers, and ultimately amassed a collection of 4,000 sets. On her way home from a convention, a man sat next to her on the plane and asked her what was in the box she was carrying. Of course, it was full of salt and pepper shakers. And she started chatting with him. That man is now her husband, Jeff, who is very tolerant of her collecting. Susie put the kibosh on her shaker collecting about 15 years ago, but she still has all the shakers and continues to display them in her home. Now she's on to collecting something far weirder. Debris balls. Are you wondering what the heck those are? Stay tuned as Susie and I will get into delightful debris in the second half of our conversation. So Susie... How did you get into collecting salt and pepper shakers originally? Well, uh, pretty much by accident. Um, I was about to move to London in the late 70s. And a good girlfriend of mine, who was also a native of Southern California, gave me a pair of matching, kind of clunky, handmade shakers of two palm trees as a nice souvenir of home. And... They were cute. I didn't, you know, respond hugely to them, but I thought that was a sweet gesture. And I took them with me to London. And when I got there, um, I started wandering around flea markets and antique stores. And I saw that there were a lot of salt and pepper shakers and some of them were pretty cute. And before I knew it, my bay window in my little muse house I was renting became, uh, I guess, essentially my first display area. So what are the different categories of these salt and pepper shakers? There are so many categories of them. Um, And some people specialize in certain categories. Some people literally buy everything they see that they're, they're not discerning. They don't curate their collections whatsoever. They just purchase. I think of myself as being a a little bit more uh, selective than that. But just for instance, the categories There are things called go-togethers, which I'm particularly fond of, stuff like a piece of pie and a scoop of ice cream, or a hammer and a nail, or a screw and an eight ball, you know, that kind of thing, a safe and a bag of money. Um, And then there are these crazy anthropomorphic shakers that are uh, like vegetable heads playing sports and fruit heads playing assorted musical instruments and dancing cutlery and dancing teapots. They're really funny and they're just, they're just quite charming. There's one piece that are stretched out animals for the most part, like uh, a skunk that's about eight inches long and the salt's on one end, the pepper's on the other, or a fox or a crocodile, or sometimes they're people. Um, There's wood 
metal, plastic, advertising, uh, two-sided called turnabouts, where on one side it's like a, a young married couple, and then you turn the shaker around, and there are a pair of grumpy old people in their pajamas. Um, and there's ones that are by this company called Parkcraft that was uh, an American company, and they were producing things in the early 40s. And they did a whole bunch of series, including like the 50 states. And a state would typically have an artifact that was associated with it, like a, like California and an orange. And so, of course, I had to have all 50 of those. And I do. Um, then there are the minis, little miniatures. They're one inch and wonderfully detailed. They're tiny little things, like a, like a genie and a lantern and a pot of gold and a rainbow and a marriage license and a diamond ring, you know, I don't know, pretty much every kind of flower, animal, cactus, you name it, the list goes on and on and on. And they, they were made in the U.S. or were they English also? Yeah, they were actually made in uh, four places predominantly. Uh, the majority were made in the U.S. and Japan. But there were a bunch that were made in England that were quite marvelous because they generally, generally were these uh, condiment sets that would house three things, a salt, a pepper, and a mustard pot. And they got really clever with their designs. And then the others were German. And there were some really fine sets coming out of Germany as well that were fun. Uh, harder to find. Mostly you encounter Japanese and American-made pieces. I tended to lean towards, I mean, I have all of those things, but I like the American pieces, the early American pieces. They just had a simplicity and a humor about them that I thought was particularly charming. You have a very particular way of displaying your salt and pepper shakers. Tell me about the displays. The thing about my collection, I have a specific space in the family room of our house, and I built a bay and uh, when I remodeled. And there are, oh, I don't know, 30 shelves, 30 little narrow glass shelves in this one area. And I can create these displays that I curate uh, depending on my mood, depending on where I've traveled, depending on what's up in the world or, you know, what season it is. And so I have had over the years, I think about 40 different displays and um, I used to do two or three a year. Now it's gotten down to this very sad fact that, you know, I had one up for eight years. So that was pretty pathetic because they're hard. It's, it's, it's hard to do. It takes a lot of time. You have to open up all the door, the drawers and you have to sort out everything and you have to figure out what applies and load them all into the house. And then, you know, I'm an artist, so I want them to look perfectly placed. So there's balance and color and all this. So it becomes quite a production, but, um, yeah, I, I, I like it because then I've only got so many up, about 100 up at a time. And it really becomes kind of a work of art to me. And it's a very, very focal point in the room. And in fact, it's above the television set. So, you know, when you're watching TV, it's kind of hard not to see these things staring you in the face. But it's a, it's a fun way to see them and, and you don't get overwhelmed. And what are some of your favorite displays that you've done? I know you told me about one that was based on a trip you did recently to Guyana. Yeah, I did. That one's up right now. Um, I did the uh, Guyana, Guyana, actually. Yes, 
I did the Guyana theme uh, because my husband and I had been there recently uh, birding. And the basic historical facts about this country, you know, were pretty intense. Like it was completely oppressed by the Dutch and the English. And then it was a big slave center. And then, of course, there was the disastrous Jonestown massacre. So there was a lot to work with combined with our birding experience. So I had fun with that one. And, and it's got all kinds of stuff ranging from the Dutch and like old English looking people and lots of slaves and chili peppers because uh, there was really good hot sauce and uh, alligators and lots of bugs and sunblock because it was brutal in the sun and, you know, Bibles and praying hands and, you know, you can get, it, it's a pretty loose interpretation and probably Jeff, my husband, is the only one that would get, you know, what I'm doing because most people will come and have no idea what the references were. Like there's a person sitting in the bathtub in this particular display. Well, it's because it was, you know, we were very dirty and the water was always freezing cold if we got a bath. Uh, snakes, you know, all kinds of, oh, there's a chicken and a bone because we used to, we had like really nasty chicken served to us more than once. Anyway, so... I like doing things that are thematic. I mean, I've, I've had all kinds of, there's a Chinese, and a Chinese uh, China, Vietnam one and a Western Australian one. And I think I did one once we had an Idaho river trip down the salmon. I did that. And, and then I'll do stuff like uh, uh, Martin Luther King, Washington's birthday and Valentine's Day. That was one display. Or there was a 2008 Summer Olympics display. Um, Christmas, Halloween, Thanksgiving, you know, kind of weddings. I think when I got married, I did a, a, a hilarious wedding one that had honeymoon destinations and quarreling couples and like a shaving brush and razor. Oh, and the God blessed our mortgage home shakers. Those were good on that one. Um, but it, they were just really fun. I can have a lot of fun. And given the fact that there's a hundred of them or so that go up, you know, I can have a big range of themes. Uh, the craziest one I think I ever do, the one that I think was pretty inspired, if I say so myself, was the Bill Clinton impeachment display. And that one was pretty darn funny. Um, I even had something close to a blue dress. It was, it was uh, actually two dresses, but there was a blue dress, so that counted. And I had uh, a set right in the middle of the display uh, called a nodder, and it was actually the container, the holder was the White House. And then the salt and pepper that sort of bob back and forth, they, they're on little flanges that enable the shakers to move back and forth. Well, one was Bill Clinton's head, and the other was Hillary's head. So I actually had Bill and Hillary in my display. But that one had a lot of nudes and a lot of... Uh, kind of indecent stuff, a guy flushing himself down the toilet, um, policemen, the American flag. I mean, it, it was pretty hilarious. Some of the shakers are quite inappropriate. Tell me a little bit about some of the salty salt and pepper shakers. Some that are the, 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 the what were called the naughties, you know, which were, um, aside from lots of women with big boobs, there were a couple of ones that 
like one I found the other day, which I thought was particularly egregiously non-PC, um, is a six, they're six inches or so tall, they're pink, they're stretched out, they're two-sided, and one shaker, I believe, is like Joseph, and the other one is Mary, and she seems to have uh, no top on, for starters. And are you ready for this? But when you turn the shakers around, they're actually penises. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't really know. (laughs) They came from Japan. I don't know what possessed the creator of that to make them. I have no idea why they even exist. But there they are, and they are in my collection. Um, Then there's, you know, there's stuff like, Upended feet, like a pair of male big feet, and the female feet sit in between them. Um, they're pretty hilarious. There's, there's, they get pretty graphic at times. Uh, two legs up in the air, spread apart. You know what can I say? They were made in the fifties, mostly these guys, and uh, they're pretty funny. They weren't. You know, the Joseph and Mary one, I really don't have a clue about that. That one is really out there. Um, But I can see why they did the nude ones. I mean, there, there's, there's one that's pretty unusual. It's a, it's a, um, a dressed couple. It's a man in a suit with the male portion of an electrical plug coming out of his groin. And he stands behind a woman with her pink skirt pulled up and back revealing the female portion of a plug and they kind of fit together when you see it you just think it's this happy skipping young couple and then you see this black electrical outlet down there in the nether regions and it's just you know nobody would make something like that today they just they just wouldn't do it and it's kind of as inappropriate as it might be they are kind of delightful these are delightful I find um so what how would you just make a display about what's going on in our country now I don't know why I haven't thought of that in in the year 2000 I did one about you know oh 100 years of inventions and current trends and that kind of thing but you have inspired me I think I need to do one based on the scene today I think that's a fantastic idea um, I'm, my brain is working here. I'm trying to imagine if I could do it. Do you have some Russian salt and pepper sets? It would be a very big challenge because I don't know if I have anything from Russia. I actually might have to go on eBay and see if I can find something Russian. Uh, but I, I could possibly pull one off. I mean, you know, with the, with the, Damages to the environment, to yeah, I. This is very interesting. I'm going to have to give that some serious thought. So then, what was it like at the conventions that you went to? Nuts! A total frenzied, rabid collecting, and then at the collections they would have, um, you'd have like a, you'd have dinners together, and then there was always a party at the end where there used to be a costume party, and people would dress up as their favorite salt and pepper shakers. I never did it, but I have to say some of these costumes were absolutely amazing. They were so funny. And I mean, so the whole thing was pretty ridiculous, but I met a lot of fun people. I met a lot of friends, some of which I even have to this day. And uh, all in all, it was uh, it was also a fantastic way to get shakers. I'd usually come home from one of these conventions with 
I don't know, anywhere upwards of 200 to maybe even 400 sets. I'd have to ship them all home. Okay. Um, So then you don't store salt and pepper in them ever. Is that right? There, There are a few in my kitchen that have salt and pepper in them. Um, it's a big S and a big P, which is kind of the classic set. Came in a whole bunch of colors. They were made in the fifties. And generally when I put a display up, I always have one of those in this display somewhere about in the middle. Um, but no, in fact, the salt corrodes the, some of these shakers. I mean, even the, even the ceramic, uh, can get start to get kind of pitted and strange. So generally speaking, when I would find a pair that had salt in it, I'd dump it out pretty quickly. And you did all of this pre-eBay? Yeah. So this yeah. is all flea markets, little shops, conventions. Exactly. I don't think I bought more than a, a handful, four or five, on eBay. It's just too hard. There's too many of them listed, and it's not fun. In my mind, not to shop like that. I like the treasure hunt part of it. You know, I like, I like, I like coming upon something and being surprised by finding it. And so when we talk about this obsessive collector mentality, this obsessive collector gene, at what point did you stop and why? At what, when do you reach the point where you're just like, I have enough? (laughs) I think I reached that about Mm, the last convention was 2002, so I'd say safely it was probably about 10 years ago where I realized that truly enough was enough, and I was overflowing with salt and pepper shakers. And the older you get, the less stuff you want, and then I'm sort of realizing, well, who on earth wants all these things? And, you know, it just it, it, I, I, I just don't need them anymore. So I have to say, though, I have been looking through my photographs because I've got a lot of albums of these things. And then I took pictures of most of the displays I ever put up. And they really are fun. They really are cute and quite sweet. And I kind of fell in love with them again. And I thought, well, I'm not going to go out and buy anymore, but I think I'll try to be a little bit more active in, in changing the displays up, you know, rather than every decade or so. Nice. It's like shopping your closet, people say, about clothes. Yeah. Definitely. Do you think you'll ever get rid of them or do you ever give them away or sort of downsize a little bit? No. I mean, I've got duplicates that I'd love to get rid of and maybe there's a few in there that I don't like as well as others. But for the most part, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a collection that's going to stay where it is in my possession because until the day I sell it as probably a collection, it'd be too difficult to sell it piecemeal. Um, and I really don't any, know anybody in my family that, that wants them, so I can't leave them in a will. Uh, so and, and I, I thought at some point it would be kind of fun if there was a restaurant or something, you'd make a pretty outrageous uh, interior decor to have all the walls just covered in these things. I think there is a place actually up in Oregon that's got some diner up there that's got a bunch of shakers displayed, and, and it's kind of a feature for them. People come from across the state to see it, so... But, you know, no, probably they'll stay put in, a, in, a, in the Susie Frank collection and who knows what will become of them. In the second half of our conversation, Susie and I talked about her other collections. She has many, including her fascinating and esoteric collection of 
debris balls. Okay, so let's talk about now your other collections, because I find and I find this a lot, of course, with collectors that if they collect one thing, they don't just collect one thing; they collect multiple things, of course. Um, and we must talk about debris balls. I just have been since you put it on my radar. I've been telling everyone about it because debris balls, people, it just confounds people. What the heck is that? I think, first of all, it's pretty funny that you even um, have been have been have, have been sharing this this information with other people because um, they're hard to describe. They're hard to imagine. Um, they're generally not out there much. You know, you don't really see them anywhere. So I, I, I'm a, I'm happy that you were intrigued with them and wanted to share them with other people in the first place. Um, yeah, they're actually one of my very favorite collections. Uh, they're clearly the weirdest one that I have. And they are, uh, well, nobody really knows exactly how they're made. Um, basically, they're also known as surf balls. I don't know if I named them debris balls, but it fits as far as I'm concerned. But basically, um, surf action, motion of the waves, tosses up, tangled up bits of fishing line or something like that, that gradually uh, start to gather stuff like small feathers and fragments of shells and vegetation like seagrass or pine needles I often find. And then ultimately and mysteriously, tiny little wood twigs. Uh, and it tosses them back and forth in the surf until they eventually get thrown up on the beach and deposited above the tide line. And there are these if they're fully formed debris balls, they end up being these beautiful, incredibly intricately put together. I don't know how it happens. And very, very delicate balls of what look like, um, they kind of just look like round nests. And unless they're not fully formed, of course. The fully, the, the fully formed ones look like that. But the unformed ones, which are the majority of my collection, pretty much look like trash. They look like uh, a little knot of fishing wire that's got some junk stuffed in it. And But the more that they get tumbled in the surf, the more that they gather this debris, and the more that they start turning into these amazing little kind of works of art that the, the sea is creating, they're, they're quite spectacular. I agree. They're very, they, they totally look like bird's nests. In fact, don't you have some eggs like displayed in one as if it was a bird's nest? Um, I don't know if I, I have them sitting right next to the bird's nests that I collect. Oh, so you actually have bird's nests as well. Yeah, I have bird's nests. I have bird's nests. I don't, I don't buy them. I find them. If I find them, I keep them. And I don't take them out of the trees. You know, I don't take them. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't remove them from the bird and birds. I just, if I find them, I... You're very I, ethical I, about your nest absolute, collecting. Absolutely. Absolutely. The debris balls, I have to tell you, they, they they are evidently found all over the world, both in freshwater and saltwater. I've never seen them in freshwater, and I have rarely found them um, anywhere, with the exception of um, one tiny, pathetic little one down here in Southern California. My niece found it for me on the beach one day, and we were both amazed. Um, but all of mine have come from um, the Pacific Northwest. And I don't know if the type of beach helps. I find that 
beaches that are made of basalt or some sort of cobblestone, I tend to find more on those beaches than others. Uh, but I have never found uh, a fully, perfectly formed debris ball on the beach. Uh, I will admit I have a couple of them, and one was given to me by a friend who lives up there. And another one, I actually conned some antique dealer who had them lying around his backyard up there into selling me one because I was so desperate to have the real deal. So most of mine are just these, these crazy things that um, I find beauty in, even if they aren't fully formed, that I have found by picking up clumps of seaweed and uh, you know all kinds of trash and stuff on the beach. You kind of have, have to scrounge around to look for them. Um, but... Oh, and also, I always, for some reason, make the mistake of going up to Oregon in the summer, sort of immediately after the local communities have had their cleanup day, their beach cleanup day, where they sweep the beach clean of what they consider to be trash. And of course, debris balls would be in that category. So I, I always really get slim pickings. And how did this start? Did you just find one and then it snowballed from there, so to speak? No, I was um, with a friend. We were walking down to the beach and we got down onto the beach and there was a little lady sitting there with a table of things that she was educating children about, shells and whatnot. And on the table was a beautiful four-inch across perfect round debris ball. And I just, you know, it was like the magnetic attraction. I just saw this thing and I said, my goodness, what is that? And she explained what they were, and she said that you could find them uh, occasionally on the beach. And so my girlfriend and I proceeded down to the beach where we started turning over every piece of driftwood and ended up spending hours on the beach that day and giggling the entire time and feeling like complete idiots. But we found the beginnings of some of these things, and that pretty much started it. And then I would only go back occasionally. I've only, I've really only been to Oregon about four times. So I've only made four attempts um, to get these things. And every time I go, I obviously, we spend a day or two going to different beaches, seeing what we can find. You have a friend who is a photographer who did photographs of these that were very large scale and they're beautiful. Yeah, they're really beautiful. My, my friend Augustine Garza, I'll give him a little plug. He's a spectacular um, artist, photographer, amazingly creative man. And he has an eye a little bit like my eye. We both appreciate things that are a little off the charts. And we like decay and, you know, eroded things and discarded things. And he saw these debris balls and just fell in love with them and wanted to photograph them and have a show. And so he came over to my house one day and he set up this little black backdrop and this whole thing with his, his tripod. And, and he very carefully selected the ones that he wanted. And they're not easy to move. When you pick them up, things the debris tends to fall out. So they're really strangely fragile, given that they've taken, you know, Lord knows how many weeks of pounding by waves. But ultimately, when they end up outside of the ocean, they fall apart quickly. So I was very particular that he took great care with them. And he selected a half a dozen or so that he felt were fabulous. They weren't even my favorites necessarily. But then he took really high res, gorgeous photographs of these debris balls suspended 
So you, they're just kind of dropping against this black background um, in midair. And then he printed, he had these spectacular prints that are probably about six feet long by, I don't know, maybe two and a half feet wide of these debris balls falling at different heights and had a dozen of them printed and put up in this show on these white gallery walls. And I have to say, they were really stunning. People just fell in love with them. And then they're giving Augustine all the credit. It was like, hello, you know, <laughs> I, I found these debris balls. And it's very funny. You should be but, yeah, credited as the collector. Well, I think he occasionally made mention of that throughout the evening. So how many debris balls do you have? I think I, I counted them up and I, I, I came up with about 65. But I really only have maybe four that are full on you know, fully formed balls. The rest of them are in various stages of development. And how big are the fully formed ones? The biggest one I have is about four inches by six inches. I've heard of ones in Australia that can be like 12 inches across, which would be phenomenal to get to see. Um, most of them are about two by two when they're finished. And mine range from like an inch to, like I said, six inches. Let's now talk about your other collections. We could just talk all day about your collections because there are so many. You collect globes, you collect sand, and you collect children's stoves. Children's stoves, that's really out there. What, what's with the children's stoves? Don't you think they're cute? They're adorable. They're so, they're what so are cute. they made out of? They're mostly made out of um, metal. They're like more heavy duty than tin. Um, they're just little metal stoves. And I used to have one when I was a child. Some of them are electrified. You can plug them in and you can actually do some sort of quasi-baking in them. And uh, in the 50s and 60s, those were little girls' toys, or possibly boys. Um, uh, and so I think I had an electrical stove back then. I don't have that particular one. Um, but they're just so cute. And again, like salt and pepper shakers, as soon as you start seeing all the different forms they come in, you, if you've got that collector mentality, you just start needing them. So I ended up getting, you know, I've got stoves and barbecues and sinks and there's kitchen counters and kitchen cabinets and refrigerators and some are electrified, some are not. My refrigerator, one of my refrigerators was a salesman's model. So it's kind of slightly bigger than others, but it's a full-on refrigerator that, you know, looks like the real thing. But for a child. Well, actually, his was for sales purposes. You know, that was the one that was not a child's toy. It was for him to take around and show sales rooms or I don't know what the heck they were doing with them. So it's, it's kind of heavy. It's really well made. It's like a miniature refrigerator. Um, the rest of them are all empty, lightweight, metal you know, facsimiles of various kitchen appliances. and At the end of each episode, we close with the collecting culture questionnaire. So normally I would ask if you've ever had a collecting mishap, but you already told me that you don't think you've really had one of those, or at least one that you'd want to recount. So we will move on to if you could collect anything other than what you already collect, what would it be? I can't believe I'm asking you this because you already collect so many things, but what would it be? Yeah, I had to think about this because really uh, enough is enough. And I, I, thought, I, I thought, honestly, I don't need a thing, so I can't answer that question. And then I started to think about it. 
And I realized there was one thing that I would love to have, but I would never do it because I'm an avid birder and it would be a really bad thing to do environmentally and it's illegal to boot um, and very uncool if I did it. I would never do it. But, so, I but this would, is a fantasy. So you can this just is a fantasy. be in the fantasy. This, this is a fantasy. Or if I had lived 150 years ago, I could have actually done it, which wasn't cool then either. But I would have a great bird egg collection. I love bird eggs. And to, I have some bird eggs. I have found all of them. Some are broken. Some are not. I even collect rocks that look like bird eggs, that's pretty challenging, in fact, to find perfectly formed little speckled or white or whatever, little perfectly formed rocks that, that look like eggs. So that's kind of what I focus on. But in my, my rock egg collection, I do have some bird eggs. And some of them were given to me and others I have found just lying in the you know sidewalk. But boy, I've seen some museums that have amazing collections of bird eggs and they're so beautiful i would love to be able to have those but no it's not going to happen and if you could live in another time when would it be if i could live in another time when could it be uh another hard one to to, to answer i'm not sure about it i mean i think probably the time that i've lived in is probably one of the better ones but i've always wished i could have a time machine um, I'm very curious and boy, I'd give this entire planet, uh, history. I mean, a look at the history, you know, I'd give it a pretty thorough look if I could. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I'd like to be able to check it all out, frankly. The music and editing for this podcast was provided by my co-producer, my brother, Andrew Logan. More of his work can be found at logansound.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate us in your podcast app of choice, and tell your friends. For more photos and details from this and our other episodes, visit collectingculturepodcast.com. Or show us your collection by tagging Collecting Culture Podcast on Instagram. We'll be back next month with another collector.